Good morning. I would invite you to stay standing as we uh, read our scripture this morning. Um, before I do that, I want to say uh, I'm really, really glad you're here this morning. And I uh, had a chance to meet some new people and just uh, very glad you're here. Uh, especially was surprised this morning to see my college roommate show up today. And I'll just point at them. Uh, Blake Coleman and his wife Katie are here, and I'm just really glad they're here. Uh, take a moment after the service to get to know them, and uh, Blake can tell you some stories about me. But we shared a lot of life together, and I just appreciate him coming. Let's uh, do what is a near town tradition uh, and, and stand in honor of the word this morning. And uh, I'll invite you to listen as we begin a new series in, in the book of 1 Thessalonians which was written by the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to read the first 10 verses of that letter. It was a letter written to a church that Paul dearly loved. So listen as I read uh, from the Word of God, these words that God gave to Paul for this church and for our church. Here we go. Paul begins uh, his letter. Paul Silvanus, or your translation may say Silas and Timothy, three men on a missionary journey, written to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word, the gospel, in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Would you bow with me? Father God, as we begin uh, studying this book of the Bible, and we look at your second 
coming, your promise to return. I pray that uh, you would just unleash your Holy Spirit in our midst to take your word and pierce deeply into our hearts, that you would profoundly disturb us and shake us and awaken us and grip us, Lord, that our lives would not be able to go on with the level of normalcy that we have been accustomed to, that that we would just be We would be changed. Lord, that the star that we are aligning our life on would be and would become you and your return. God, that you would become the supreme priority in our life and that you would just come and have your rightful place in our lives. And we are just inviting you and asking you to come and to love us this way in this series, in the next seven weeks. We want to be different as we encounter you and your word. We confess, Lord, uh, we feel that need. We, so we invite you in. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. As we come to this book, I feel like I'm kind of far from you, so... Um, I'll just talk louder, but as we come to the book of Thessalonians, what we see is that this is a church, a group of believers whose lives are so connected to the second coming of Christ. I mean, their lives are so rooted in and so anchored in the second coming of Christ that uh, it looks like in chapter 4 and 5 that some of these church goers, some of these followers of Christ have actually quit their jobs. I mean, they were so feeling that sense of urgency and uh, um, just imminence of the coming of Christ that they, they had their bags packed. They had turned in their resignations and they had pretty much went to the bus stop to wait for the bus to come. And so Paul actually has to come in in this letter and actually correct some of their misunderstanding about what it looks like to wait for his return. And he has to tell them, hey, get back to work. Don't be idle. Work with your hands. Live quietly, as we'll see in chapter 4 and 5. But they're waiting. They're they're ready. And then in chapter 4, we see some of the believers are worried because some of their loved ones have recently passed away and died and and they're worried and concerned that that they've missed because they died they've missed and they're going to miss out on the second coming and so Paul has to come in in this letter and he has to comfort them and he has to to assure them that God's got this under control all right he he knows those who are his he's not leaving anyone behind but they are so connected you know we have the opposite problem that they have. And I really feel this in my own life. The modern church is in danger of living our lives almost entirely divorced from a hope in the second coming. You know, that's functionally atheism. The unbelief 
the absence of a hope that our God will actually do what he says he will do. In John 14, uh, 1 through 3, Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And then in Revelation chapter 22, listen to the church and the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride of Christ, the bride of uh, the, the church, say to the Lord, come. And then it says, and let him who hears say, come. And he, King Jesus, verse 20, King Jesus, who testifies to these things, says, yes, I am coming. And then the apostle John closes our Bible with these words. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you hear the heart of the church, the, the deep, deep yearning of the church? And it says, and the spirit. So what, what I'm saying is in Revelations, the spirit within us, the church, stirs us and causes us to yearn from that deep place within us. And it comes out in the cry to the Lord Jesus, come. There's an exclamation mark there. Come. And then as, as the church lives that life of yearning for the coming of Christ, then, the, then it revelations the world around us begins to hear us yearn and come, and it becomes contagious, and it draws others in, and suddenly the world around us is, is beginning to say along with us to Jesus, come. And then Jesus says, yes, I am coming. As we begin to look at this chapter or this book where every chapter is anchored and, and draws us back to our hope in the second coming of Christ. As we begin to look at this hope in Christ, I want us to consider that our hope is so different than the hope the world clings to. Hope is an essential, a necessary thing in life because life is harsh Life is difficult. Life often and frequently pulls the rug out from under our feet. And, and our hope is not some sentimental hope. It's not some feeling that we grasp for to step in and fill that gap where we're hurting. So it's not, it's not a hope that's born out of our emotional instability. That we conjure up. Our hope is not illusionary. It's not something born out of our imagination. It's not something we create to help us cope with life. All right? It, it is, um, as a matter of fact, if we're honest, the hope of returning Christ, it's not something we would have ever come up with. If we're honest, in our flesh, we have trouble connecting with this hope. It, it requires a tremendous faith 
And when we struggle to connect with this hope in our own strength, and so what I can say is this hope is not something that we've conjured up. Um, Peter tells us to always be ready to give an answer for the hope we have. And you know what we can say to the world? We can, we can confidently and humbly commend our hope to the world because we have a real hope that is rooted in the real return of a real person who is a real answer to real problems and who really keeps his word. I mean, this is the, this is the Jesus, the God who told us in scriptures that he would come the first time. And he did. And this is the Savior who told us in scriptures, I'm going to be hung on a cross to save the world from their sins. And he did. And this is the real Jesus who told the world, I'm going to be be brought back to life and demonstrate my power, my divine nature, and my authority to be victorious over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave. And he did. And this is the Jesus who said, I'm coming again. And he is. So uh, what I'm going to be doing, and and I am uh, honored to tag team with Pastor Russell this series, and I'm honored to... Pastor Russell has invited me to preach three of the seven messages in the next seven weeks. And what I'm going to be doing along with uh, our Pastor Russell is pleading from the Scriptures with you. Pleading for the return of the church to waiting for the return of Christ. Pleading for the return of the church to a God-honoring life of waiting for the return of Christ. And that's what we see in our text today. Um, Verse 10, we see a group of people who have got together. They've been saved by the gospel, and it says that they are waiting for the Son from heaven, whom whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now this morning, I want to invite you to consider with me, what does it look like? What what does a life of waiting, a life of waiting look like as we wait for Jesus to return? And I I have four ideas that I want to commend to you that you can take home this week and consider. The first idea is this, that uh, a life of waiting that honors God as we wait on his return It begins with uh, what I see in this text today. It begins with what I would call, what I want to call, a world-shaking conversion. All right, that's where it begins. It begins with a world-shaking conversion. Let's look at this. Um, Verse 4 and 5, we see here, it says, Brothers loved by God, he has chosen you. And he says, we know this because... Our gospel came to you, all right? And it came not only in word, it wasn't just preached, but there were ears on the other side. And when those ears heard the gospel preached, it went into the ears and it came into the heart. 
And it became like a ferocious grip upon these people's lives. And it says it came in with power. The word power translates as dunamos or dynamite. In other words, there was an explosive impact in the life of these people when the gospel message hit them. And then it says it came with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit handles the gospel in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the surgical hands of God that applies the gospel in life-saving ways to us as we hear it by faith. And it says with full conviction. I mean, this was a Mike Tyson punch. It hit them so hard that it sucked the wind out of them, and they just knew. They had full conviction, full weight of God bearing down. This is the gospel truth. So the gospel came in and it utterly pummeled these people in a good way. And then we see this. It turned their world upside down, beginning in the inside. I mean, these people were so wrecked that, that the, 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 the idols of their ancestors that they had worshipped for generations, they were willing to cast aside to worship the true and living God. So this was a, 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 a dramatic shift. Uh, uh, this was a dethroning of a false God in their life that had dictated their path for generations. And now they let a new God come in who they believed was the one true living God. And it was costly to them. They paid a heavy price for it. But it turned their world uh, inside out, upside down. And then secondly, it turned the outside world upside down. We see in verse 8 and 9, it says that after they got changed... It says that the word began to go out from them. It says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you into the immediate area of Macedonia. And we get the English word echo for sounded forth. Can you, can you picture that? If you've ever been in like a mountainous area or, a, you know, an area where you holler out and it just echoes. In other words, um, the gospel was traveling a great distance. There was a ripple effect that came. It began with, with one person, two people, one community. It was small. It was right there. It was concentrated. But that's the nature of the gospel. See, the gospel can come into a group of people and utterly undo us and redo us and shake us up. And, but we can't contain that. That's the nature of the gospel. It began to sound forth from them, to echo, to reverberate into the greater areas. And, and so their life change was going out, and it was um, beginning to be received. And it says not just the immediate area, but then it says not only so, but your faith has gone, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So... Uh, what I want to say to us is that's where a life of waiting begins. It begins with you and I encountering the gospel in a world-shaking conversion. I, I will highlight something here. It says, they, they, in verse 10, they were waiting on Jesus to return. It says, who delivers us from the wrath of God. One way the gospel motivates us in our conversion is it offers us deliverance from the wrath of God. 
This is a heavy thought, but I want you to consider that every one of us must decide whether we will face the wrath of man or the wrath of God. There's no wiggle room where we get to be excused from this. The the reality is we'll face either the wrath of man or the wrath of God. There's a great movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. And uh, in that movie, Napoleon Bonaparte has been exiled to an island. He's no longer the ruler. But there's one man in the movie who is still loyal to Napoleon. And uh, at one point in the movie, he is espousing his loyalty to Napoleon. And his son warns him, you'd better be careful. Or you're going to be found guilty of treason. And uh, I love what the, the father says. He's looking out through the window as if he's looking at the future. And he says to his son, you know, treason, to be found guilty of treason would be punishable by death. It's a serious thing. And he's looking out the window in response. And, and I love what the father says. He says, treason is a matter of dates. It's a matter of dates. And what he was saying is, I might be guilty of treason now. But one day, I believe Napoleon will come back. And on that later date, you will be found guilty of treason. And, and so what, what I would say to us is we, we've got to consider that each of us will be found guilty of treason. Either treason, petty treason, guilty of going against the culture, guilty of going against uh, the religious preference of the day, guilty of going against the values of the world, we'll be found guilty, and the consequence will be the wrath of those who we are traitors to. Had a man in our church in Taiwan who, the moment he decided to follow Christ, his uncle shouted at him, get out of the house. And he didn't speak to his parents, they didn't speak to him for eight years. In their eyes, he was guilty of treason, and he paid a heavy price. But the heaviest price will be on the day that the king, the true king, returns. And that day, all who have chosen to rebel against that king will be found guilty of high treason. That is a heavy thought. But the good news of the gospel comes to deliver us from the wrath to come and to give us courage to face the present wrath of man. And uh, so I leave that with you on the first point. Second point, what does it look like to live a life of waiting? And uh, my stopwatch has stopped here, so someone let me know when we're getting close back there. The second thing about a life of waiting is this. A life of waiting for us is built upon, foundationally built upon, gospel thankfulness. Gospel-centered thankfulness is the pervasive tone that will flow through a life of waiting. Let's look at this, verses 2 and 4. Let's follow Paul's logic here, all right, as we see what a gospel-centered thankfulness looks like. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. So here we go. This is Paul's constant attitude. He lives a life of gospel or a life of thankfulness. See that? Thanksgiving is the attitude and the prayer life that oozes out of Paul. All right, we know later and elsewhere in the scripture he says, give thanks always. 
So that oozes out of him thanksgiving. And notice it's directed primarily, and, and here it's directly given to God. We give thanks to God always. All right? But then notice this. He says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. Now he's talking to the Thessalonians, and he credits them, saying, this is your work of faith. In other words, they are not passive here. They are working. They are, they are uh, like ants. They're busy ants. They're working. And then he says, your labor of love. They're the ones carrying out this labor, this, this effort. And then he says, your steadfastness of hope. He's, they're the ones that are not quitting. They are steadfastly persevering in the face of affliction. So how does Paul reconcile the fact that he's over here thanking God, but then he's over here saying, you're the one doing the work. And, and so what we see is he goes on and he says this, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. And that's the reconciliation here. It's the gospel. The, the gospel is this message, that whatever good comes in our life or out of our life, he did it, all right? Paul says elsewhere that whoever works should do so with the strength God gives. So the gospel is, is, is the, the reality within this, uh, this truth that says God is the one working in us and through us. He is the one energizing us. He's the one enabling us. He's the one that makes it possible for us to do anything. As a matter of fact, the gospel would have us believe this. The gospel, the gospel shatters our pride. It pulls the rug out from under our ego. It's an offense to our culture of self-esteem and humanism, which says, I can do it. And the champion is, is me, whatever. But the gospel would have us believe this, that, that we are actually a ruined canvas. I'm using an art metaphor here. We're actually a ruined canvas We've been ruined and marred by the sin and the wickedness of those around us, whether it was an abusive relationship, whether it was an, uh, a, a bad parent, uh, an abusive parent, or whether it was just whatever series of relationships have just, just kind of dirtied and soiled and bent and crushed the canvas. And not only that, but we're responsible. The, the Bible would have us believe that we ourselves have marked up and defaced the canvas that is us. And, and so the only thing that we can really be good for uh, in light of sin is to be discarded in the dumpster, which is shameful because we were originally made beautifully and glorious in God's image. Perfect. Beautiful. But because of sin, we're discarded. We're in the dumpster, and the gospel would have us believe that we start there. But then God comes by faith, and he rescues us out of the dumpster. And by the cross and the shed blood of Christ, he begins to wash us and cleanse us and create us into a new, brilliantly white canvas that is now ready for him to begin painting a masterpiece on, eventually to be hung 
in a gallery so that when the world comes, they will marvel at what God has done. Imagine if at that moment the world comes and they seize God's masterpiece in you. Imagine if that moment they begin to thank you. That's perverse. To miss the point that it was God who painted, that it is God who is doing this work in us. So we, we can't miss that, that our life will be, will be pervasively a, a gospel-centered thankfulness. It doesn't mean we don't thank each other, all right? Paul constantly affirms uh, this person, that person. He, he affirms people. He builds them up. He recognizes effort. But he never loses sight that it is God working in us. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says. For by grace are you saved. Grace is God's undeserved favor. By grace are you saved. It was God who went to you and, and me and pulled me out of the dumpster and saved me, salvaged me. For by grace are you saved through faith. I looked to him by faith, and he got me. It says, and this is not your own doing. Now, I'm reading the scripture here. This is the gospel's message, and this is not your own doing, Ephesians 2.8. It is a gift of God, not because of works, so that no man can boast. You see that? There's the rug getting pulled out from under the feet of pride. No man will stand before God and say, I am worthy of your love. I'm worthy of heaven because of what I've done. The gospel pulls the rug out of self-effort and works. It says it's purely a gift of God. But then it says in verse 10, we are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so there you go. We're walking out those good works, that labor of love, that work of faith, that steadfastness of hope, we're actively walking in the grace of God, gospel-centered thankfulness. Thirdly, I like this one, the entirety of a life of waiting on the coming of Christ is to be lived as an act of joyful worship, an act of joyful worship. Look at this, verse 6, second part of verse 6 says, the Thessalonians, you received the word or the gospel in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. A little bit of background here. Um, in Acts 17, what we see is, is the Jews are jealous because the city is running to the gospel. Many people are getting saved. So they stir up some revelers and they create a riot in the city. They storm into the house of one of the church members looking for Paul and Silas to drag them before the court. They couldn't find them because Paul was smuggled out in the night before. And now they, they take one man, Jason, and a couple of his brothers and they drag them before the city authorities and they accuse them of stirring up um, basically committing treason, of, of stirring up, claiming there's another king above Caesar. And so these men are treated horribly, all right? They are, this is their affliction. This is what, it's, what they're talking about here. But notice in the midst of all this turmoil, fearing for their life, afraid to go outside, wondering, how, how am I going to be able to go on in this city when the whole city has turned against us? It's heavy. This could happen at your workplace on any given week. This could happen in your family at any given reunion, all right? This, this is the kind of thing that can happen. This is your friends 
could, 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 could begin to pre- press on you. The word affliction literally means to press. It, it is a pressure, a pressure, and the pressure is this, quit, quit, give up, denounce Christ. Just go with the flow. It's always that pressure. It's heavy, but notice in it, they received it with joy. Here's an analogy that, that, uh, that helps me appreciate what it looks like to have joyful worship. Imagine you get home. This, I'll do this for the men. This is for the men. Imagine, guys, you get home after a very long week at work where everything was going bad, deadlines, just stress, things aren't going right. You're really feeling exhausted. You get home, the house is a wreck. It smells, it stinks, the dishes are piled up, the trash hasn't been taken out, and the dog pooped right in the corner. I mean, it's bad, all right? Not only that, but you're hungry, you miss lunch, your stomach is rumbling, and that spaghetti you were trying to eat from last week, oh, it's got mold on it. I mean, it's bad. I mean, at this point, life is heavy. You know what? That's a picture of what it feels like when when life is divorced from worship. It sucks the joy right out of life, and life becomes drudgery, monotony, heavy. Here's a different scenario. Imagine men that same week, but this week it's your wife's birthday. And imagine that you absolutely love her. Hopefully that's not hard to imagine. And all week, you, you've been brainstorming this awesome idea how you're just going to bless your wife on her birthday. And, you, and you've been plotting out and planning it. And, and, and you, in your eye, it's, it's going to build up, build up. And then on, finally on that Friday, it's going to culminate in this awesome dinner and it's going to end with you and her together, with her in your arms. And so you're, you're, you're moving towards this moment. And so your whole week has just been kind of swept up in that. You can imagine. I mean, it, it's exciting. And your whole week, you've just been kind of lifted. And, and things just aren't getting you down like they normally do because you're excited. And then Friday comes and you rush home and you can't wait to clean the house. You want it to look spotless for her. You're doing this for her. And, and you get, you're vacuuming, you're cleaning, you got the smell goods going, and the table set just right with these candles lit and the lights are down. You have just enough time to shave and shower and throw on that cologne that she likes. And you're, you just sit down on the couch right when the door turns and she walks in. She's just floored. She's just surprised and it works just the way you had thought. And she comes and she hugs you and you hug her and you sit down to dinner and you enjoy each other's company and you dance into the night. That's how I like to see it. <laughs> That's a picture of what it's like when you are living all of life as worship. To live in worship, it, it, it is to be infused with a joy that has an eye to the future, to that crowning moment when you will be with the one you love. That's what sustains these people here in this affliction, this joyful worship. And then 
Fourthly and finally, and I'll be brief here, a life of waiting, when we learn to do it right, it will draw others in through what I see here as a reproducible discipleship. Verse 5 and 7 here, we see that Paul and his men came and they lived a certain kind of life that was worthy of imitation. It was a reflection of Christ. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you. And he says in verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And you received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia. What I would like to see and what the Bible wants to see for the church is to see all of us, to see every member discipled and to see every member discipling. There are so many opportunities to to be drawn into this discipleship process where we learn to imitate our leaders who are imitating Christ and then as we begin to reflect the character of Christ, we'll be able to invite others to follow us, to imitate us and it draws others in. I'm going to close with that. Um, do I have time for a closing story, or are we, are we really pressed? All right. There was a picture that, hang on, that hung on my Meemaw's wall during all my years of growing up. And uh, it was a picture she painted. And uh, I used to just get lost in this picture. It was a picture of a storm-tossed sea. And I've never seen anyone capture waves the way my Meemaw captured them. She's a really good painter. And uh, this picture was just, it used to just, I mean, it was, just gave me a, a, almost a chill. Like it was, it was powerful and it was haunting. But it was mostly dark for most of those years. Mostly it evoked kind of a, a frightened emotion in me. Until I got older and, and I looked closer at the picture, at the picture one day and, and I, I learned a story. What I, what I was failing to see all those years in that dark picture of the storm-tossed waves was that right on the horizon, you had to get real close to the picture to see, right on the horizon, there was the faintest little painting of a ship. And... Uh, this picture was a picture of my Meemaw's life because my papaw was in the Navy. For 30 years, he was in the Navy. And for 30 years, this was their life. He would go out for days at a time, sometimes months at a time. Once or twice, he was gone for a year at a time. For 30 years, my Meemaw's life was built around him being gone and longing for his return. And when it came close for him to return... This was what she would do. She would go out and stand on the shoreline. And she had an eye to the horizon, waiting and looking for that ship to return. Because on that ship was the person who her life was bound up with, her husband. And she longed for his return. And so that picture changed for me. Now I could see, I knew where to look. There was hope in that picture. 
when you and I realize that our life, Colossians says that our life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will appear with him in glory. The more we begin to understand that our life is bound up with Christ, the more we will begin to live with an eye to the horizon for his coming. Let's pray together.